0: You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Sean Baker, who you already know as the carnivore diet guy. He has a book coming out called The Carnivore Diet. He is really sort of the go-to guy when it comes to the carnivore approach to eating. If you don't know what the carnivore approach to eating is, it's literally only animal products. Uh, it's been popularized recently over the course of the last couple of years. This is actually a returning episode for Sean Baker. He uh, he appeared on a previous episode back when Ryan Muncy was the host, and uh, since then it has exploded. Uh, Joe Rogan is is celebrating World Carnivore Month this month. Jordan Peterson has come out as a proponent of it to heal gut health issues, um, autoimmunity disease as well as you know, some like emotional stuff, uh, anxiety and depression that he's faced. And that's really what the stats say. The stats are saying that this really does help a lot of health issues for many, many, many people. In this episode, we cover the misinformation around um, the cattle industry and how we've been fed a line of bull crap around, well, literally bull crap, around emissions from cows Uh, we dig into, um, how the carnivore diet mimics a, uh, well, because it is a food, food allergy elimination diet. We talk about the absorption. We talk about performance. We talk about nutrition for kids focusing on a a animal protein, uh, based diet. Um, there are 200,000 people uploading their information and tracking their results from going on this diet. I myself am, by the time you hear this, I'll be 14 or so days into the carnivore diet, and it's it is uh, it's pretty amazing. The most alarming thing is that I'm not pooping very much. I'm a two-a-day kind of guy, and uh, maybe this is TMI, but uh, apparently my body is using all of the animal products that I'm eating, and it's fascinating. We also talk about some of the cultural pressures that we're experiencing now to go vegan and to go vegetarian. We talk about clean meat. We talk about a ton of misinformation that Sean is just not having any of. He spent a long time researching the statistics that we're, that were told about um, the degradation of the ozone and global warming because of cows. And the fact of the matter is, is that in this country, there are fewer cows than there, than there used to be. And, um, it's, uh, it's really a fascinating, it's packed full of science and Sean Baker is just a, a really dialed guy. You know, I ask him a question and he just goes for it. Yeah. This is a little provocative and I hope that you come at it with an open mind and an open heart, because I know that a lot of my friends, uh, think it's crazy to just eat meat and it's a little crazy, but, um, it seems to be working for hundreds of thousands of people. Also, uh, want to mention that Chiefs for men, Chiefs for which is owned by the same guys that own natural stacks. Um, you can get 25% off your first online purchase at Chiefs for And uh this this face wash this face wash that I'm using is is pretty great. I really like it. Uh also we are switching up the, the format a little bit. Um, We are kind of uh, branching off. The Optimal Performance Podcast is uh, spreading our wings a little bit. And what that means is uh, dedicated social platforms, more integration into other products and other guests, and we're sort of um, given a little bit more freedoms. So um, you can always go to optimalperformance.com for show notes and follow up and uh, follow me on Instagram. It's Coach Sean McCormick, S-E-A-N. McCormick, M-C-C-O-R-M-I-C-K. And uh, also go to seanmccormick.com to follow me and what the heck I do. And also follow Optimal Performance on Instagram as well. And uh, also, I'm going to offer this again. I've been talking about it for a while. If you want daily text messages to your phone with mind hacks, body hacks, spirit hacks, and life hacks... A little bit of inspiration first thing in the morning to get your day started right. Just email me your phone number. No questions asked. I'm not going to call you in the middle of the night. I'm not going to send you cute emojis or gifts of cats playing pianos. <laughs> um, uh, if you, uh, I'm here to help people, and um, and and one great way to do that is to send you text messages. So without further ado, enjoy this amazing podcast episode with Dr. Sean Baker. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Dr. Sean Baker. You probably know him from The Carnivore Diet and his appearances on many podcasts, and you may even know him from his own podcast, uh, Performance Outliers. And uh, Dr. Sean, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast.
1: Well, Sean, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to uh, get to chat with you.
0: Yeah. So you know it's it's world carnivore month i myself am uh, abiding by uh, by the carnivore approach and i think like a lot of many other people especially in the co- podcast universe who are concerned with their performance and their diet and super curious um uh what is it uh is there anything that you are just super excited about right now that just like it's it's at the tip of your tongue you live this you you talk about it is there anything that that's new or it's developed in like this month or or anything that's really recent that's got you excited
1: You know I think just a general trend towards more people being open enough to to experiment with this stuff I think you know we have this paradigm Uh, You know as somebody comes from a medical background, we've we've had the mantra for the last decade or so of evidence-based medicine Unfortunately, we're we're finding out that much of the evidence that we have is really been sort of influenced unduly by some of the pharmaceutical companies And so now I, I like to use the term results based medicine so to speak and we're seeing a lot of results that matter to people that people are you know truly reversing you know, or coming off medications, reversing symptoms and signs of diseases, which are, you know, many of which previously we just don't have a a solution for. So I think there's more and more people that are accepting that this is an option for people and more and more people willing to try it. You know, this goes flat against the grain of what we're being sort of told in the, in the, in the sort of the prevailing winds are, you know, we need to all be eating a bunch of plants and, and, and make meat a condiment. And that's based on, you know, largely epidemiologic studies, which are really a poor tool for determining what you're supposed to eat as a, as an individual. And, you know, these population-based studies, which really are so confounded with so many variables. And, you know, it's just nice to see, you know, it's, well, World Carnival Month for one, you know, I started that last year, you know, just, just, you know, the reason it's in January, just so you don't know, is because January is my birthday. <laughs> I'm oh, to, nice. I, turn, I actually turned 52 tomorrow. And so I did that just <laughs> because I was like, because they had made it veganuary. The vegans didn't that kind of pissed me off a little bit. Well, I said, the hell that's my birthday month. I'm going to make it world carnival month. And so that's the story behind that. And so we're in our second year and last year was very successful. Thousands of people did it and got, uh, you know, just a whole bunch of people had just tremendous results. And so this year it's even bigger. We've got a lot of, uh, producers, you know, people that produce, you know, meat and, and, and products around that are, are now supporting that and are buying into the idea. And so, I think you know we're getting a little bit of a pushback against the uh, sort of what we're being told to eat, and I think that's I think we should do that. We should we should really re- rigorously uh, determine what's the best thing for us individually, you know, to choose to eat.
0: I want to go. I want to hit it head on uh, because um, we we've been told what to eat for such a long time. Does it stem from? The Food pyramid and subsidies and government funded corn crops and grain and stuff like that Is that really is that really where it kind of begins the indoctrination of the fact that we were told to eat cereal every morning.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean certainly that does play a role I mean we have uh, you know for those who don't know the American dietetic dietetics Association was founded in 1917 One of the pr- principal founders was a gal named Lena Cooper who was a seventh-day Adventist vegetarian and so Ever since the sort of nutrition science, at least in the Western world, has has started, it's been vegetarian in, in its sort of belief system. And so the fact coupled with uh, that processed grains and some of these, you know, these, these foods are very profitable. They're, they're extremely profitable. They're cheap calories. You know, there is a push to feed a lot of people a lot of just cheap calories and it's not much nutrition. And that has really sort of driven a lot of a lot of policy and, and, and you know, not to be conspiratorial, but I mean money is what drives a lot of things. And so I, I think it's basically just in the name of profit, people are, you know, being told to eat this way or that way and you know, this big push to take animal nutrition out of the human diet will only result in more processed food, more processed energy, more, you know, energy rich but nutrient poor food and that's going to end up being uh you know just more of the same more people sick more people diseased more people dependent upon supplements and drugs and i think that is just absolutely you know miserable for for human human existence and so yes i mean the the subsidies we subsidize the heck out of crops you know corn and wheat and those things and uh you know they do feed a lot of people and there's not as many people starving but you know, particularly in the West, starvation is certainly not the problem. The problem is obesity and chronic disease. And those things are directly related to, you know, what we're eating now, in my view.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's clear to see, you know, um, uh, taking it one step further, because I myself um, put a lot of stock in conspiracy theories, because a lot of them turn out to just be the the truth. Uh, when you see Actors, musicians, um, public people, you know, let's just take Jay-Z and Beyonce for example. Why in the hell would they why is that their thing? Have, have they been Have they been bought? Have they been brainwashed? Is it virtue signaling? Why in the hell would Beyonce and Jay-Z have a challenge for everybody this year to go vegan?
1: Well, I mean, I think I think probably to some degree they, they believe the message has been put out there. I mean, the, the message is very compelling. You know, don't eat the cute little animals. Don't torture the animals. I mean, that that's a very uh, compelling argument that, that many people will make. And it, it resonates with a lot of people. And, and certainly with their, you know, the people that listen to Beyonce and Jay-Z are going to be, you know, younger folks that, that spend their money that way. And that, that those are their fans, and that's their fan base. And so um, – You know, does Beyonce, was she, I think she sells what Pepsi or Coca-Cola is one of her sponsors at one point. And so, I mean, getting your nutritional advice from somebody like that, you know, is arguably not that good of an idea. Uh, you know, but, but the bottom line is celebrities have a big, big platform, a big, you know, they have a big megaphone. And so a lot of people are going to listen to them. Is there somebody that's perhaps, you know, funneling some money their way for doing that? I don't know. It could be, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I don't think that uh, you know what what they're telling everybody is is, is particularly helpful. And I th- but I do think you know it's trendy for sure. I mean, certainly veganism is trendy, particularly with younger folks. You know, most of the people that go vegan tend to be you know teenagers, young college, young twenties, mostly female. Uh, it's 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 just a, a, the trendy thing to do, and so it's just one of those things that. Uh, you know whatever whatever sells tickets or whatever makes money is what what people tend to do
0: yeah, I see the connection between you know um you know i i <clears throat> myself i'm am i am about the oldest millennial out there I was born in nineteen eighty three and so I'm just barely in that cohort group and and I would say that you know to a large extent millennials um have more awareness of what's going on on the planet. They're more interconnected. They grew up with instant access to technology and these ideas, these memes around cute little animals, um, being sacrificed for our, for our nutrition. Uh, it, it tends to take on this sort of mob mentality and it also aligns just perfectly with this virtue signaling with this, uh, you know, this identity politics, like, Hey, look at me, I do yoga and I recycle and I don't eat animals, and uh, and immediately you've got one up on um, on somebody who eats even omnivorously or uh, you know isn't a vegan. And it's sad to say because um, there is a lot of sick people. And when you know your Instagram is so awesome, <laughs> I'm sure you hear that a lot. But the, the the demystifying. Uh, uh, debunking science and posting pictures of people who used to be vegan who turn it around you know uh, the one sticks out to me you know a guy in his mid-20s who went was vegan for a long time and he's emaciated and his eyes are sunken in, and he's got bags under his eyes and it's like the last photo he took before he switched to carnivore and then like within weeks like he his beard starts to grow like the color comes back to his face does does that uh Uh, do you think that is, do you think that people really are turning the quarter against this, this sort of disinformation campaign around, um, around diet?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly, you know, a pushback for sure. I think that's, that, that, that movement is growing. I think the one funny thing, as crazy as this carnivore diet is, I mean, it is very much in your face saying, look, we're doing 180 degrees opposite of what we're told. And guess what? We're all getting healthier. So therefore, it calls into question all of the nutritional advice that we've been given over the years. And I think that is a very powerful, you know, a very powerful statement. I I just don't think you can you can sort of argue with these people that say, look, I mean, I objectively and these are objective measurements. My disease has gotten better. And so I think that calls into question. And, and there is no dearth of ex-vegans out there that did do it for a few years and then they, they get dramatically sick. And so I think, you know, of course, the the, the the continued cry is, well, they just did it wrong or they weren't committed enough or they weren't, you know, bought into the ideology hard enough. And, and that's why they quit. But I mean, truly, I mean, you just see people and I mean, their teeth start falling out. I mean, it's, it's like, at what point do we say this is madness? And, you know, we accept the fact that, human beings, you know, being on the planet for three million years of, you know, going back to Homo habilis have always eaten meat. It's been part of what we've done since we've we've evolved. And and that's why we evolved. And that's what we evolved to be. And it has been such an essential part of the human diet. There's never been an indigenous population that, that survived without it. And, and in fact, even if you look at the Indigenous tribes today. I mean, they may be surrounded, living in the tropics, surrounded by fruits and and everything else you could possibly eat. But they still prioritize going out and hunting for for their animals because they know that's what they need. I mean, it's just, you know, the 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 sort of thought that some of these people put out that were that were actually herbivorous animals that were herbivores is beyond crazy. And I just I just uh, it just baffles me how intelligent people or assumingly intelligent people can even begin to think that but it's 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 just you know i guess nothing ever surprises you know the 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 silliness that humans are willing to do nothing you know you see all the kind of crazy stupid human tricks the darwin awards i mean human beings for a smart animal are are actually pretty stupid sometimes yeah (laughs)
0: yeah i think that's yeah i think i think you're, you're right on there what's it like getting getting uh Getting inundated with uh, daily, daily, daily with people saying, "Hey, I switched, and I'm this far, and I feel amazing." Does it just does it just urge you to keep forward and, and to and to continue the course on on this uh, um, on this trajectory?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly, you know, my, you know, just as I've gotten more popular on social media, you know, it just exponentially grows, and I and I literally every single day I get, you know, tens, if not, you know, twenties or thirties of people telling me. You know, this has absolutely improved my health. You know, know, people that were suicidal are no longer suicidal. People that were alcoholics or drug addicts are no longer alcoholics or drug Mm -hmm. addicts. People who were morbidly obese are no longer morbidly obese. People with horrible crippling diseases like rheumatoid arthritis are no longer experiencing those things. And I get that literally every day. So certainly it encourages me to continue to do what I do. And even if it doesn't work for 100% of the people, you know, for the percentage of people that it does is – very encouraging. And, you know, and I, and I get a small amount of negativity from the people that are ethically opposed to primarily, you know, vegans and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it encourages me to keep going down this path and I think we just need to learn more, you know, and I think there's just a lot of stuff we don't know. Anybody that's, you know, reasonably intelligent will understand that we know far less than we, than we, we, than we actually think we do. And we, there's much more we need to know and much more to learn um yeah, but it definitely inspires me to keep going, keep doing what I'm doing and uh I you know, I don't foresee stopping anytime soon.
0: How given given that uh, how important is it for I guess it depends on the person, but but how important is it do you think is 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 tracking um data, you know, especially for a podcast like this which is you know, aimed at at performance and biohacking. Like how how important is it in your mind for people to be tracking their uh their sort of biomarkers during during a carnivore diet
1: you know i think and, and i'm someone who doesn't really do that i mean it depends what you're tracking i suppose i mean if you if you ask you know me what my goal is it's not to have a blood ketone reading of whatever you know millimolar 80 percent of the time I, I don't really care about that stuff and so for me what i what the things i track and and i do think you know you 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 have to have some way of determining what direction you're going in. I mean, I I look at body composition, I look at athletic performance and then, and then, you know, as someone is in their fifties, you know, as you get older, you'll see, you'll notice health issues, you know, joint pains and stuff like that. Absence of those things, you know, good digestion, those things I track and I make sure that, you know, those are going in the right direction. I know if I do something, if I eat something and it's not all about food, but I mean, you know, for me, I know if I eat something that you know, for me, like for dairy, if I eat a lot of dairy, I'll notice some negative things that go with that. And so I, I do track those things. But when you get up into some of these things like, you know, ketone levels, heart rate variability, you know, uh, blood glucose, all those things, you know, and, and some of these labs, some people obsessively get labs, all of those things, we really don't know what they really mean in all situations. And so it becomes, it can become a source of anxiety. And so I think it's more important you know, and I learned this in athletics is to make the goal, the goal. And if the goal is health, fitness, performance, track that stuff and, and don't track the minutia that may or may not be relevant to that. I know when I used to throw Highland games, my goal was to throw this 56 pound weight, you know, more than 35 feet with one arm. You know, that was a goal. And I would, you know, that that was my stated goal, but I would get so involved in how much could I snatch? How much could I, how high could I box jump? And and I would focus on that more than I would what my actual goal was. And so that would always sidetrack me. And so I think you have to, um, you know, you know, there's nothing wrong with tracking, but you you need to realize what metrics are truly, truly important to you and figure out a way to, to objectively assess those things. And sometimes it's hard because some of those things are really subjective. How do I track happiness? You know, do I count how many times I smile a day? Do I count how many times I laugh a day? These things become difficult, but truly when it when it when it, when it's at the end of the day, what, what really matters to you? And I think those are the things you have to really say, what do I want to happen? And it's not going to be my blood ketone reading always being above 3.0 millimolar. I mean, I, I, I don't think most people could care less. I don't think people could care, you know, quite, what their testosterone level is. You know, if, if your testosterone is 800 or 600 or 300 or 1,000, you know, there are people that may, may care about that. But, I mean, ultimately what you really care about what what is my ability to put on muscle? What is my ability to, to maintain or, or to uh, you know obtain an erection? Or what's my sexual uh, you know, life like? Those things are things that are w- worth tracking or, or noting.
0: Yeah, I mean having having um having an, ob- an objective awareness around what your how you feel. You know, are you wa- are you walking around hungry all day? Do you have cravings? Um those are some some sort of soft trackables that that uh, I think a lot of people will, will identify with, you know, and listening again to your uh to your episode of the uh human performance outliers podcast with uh, I think it was Chris Donahue who's lo- you know, used to be five hundred pounds and and it's you know, hearing from hearing from a a morbidly obese guy who's had these massive, massive changes and hear him say like, I could not satiate my hunger. Like my cravings did not stop all day to now. He's at a point where I look, uh, I, I eat the steak and then after I'm done, it's like my taste buds and my cravings shut off. It's, it's, that's that is a trackable that makes sense to me that that how do you feel did you are you sleeping better do you look better are you physically in better condition you know and in your case you know what's your deadlift how's your how are the stats on your concept two row or you know like that I, I'm with you man I, I I'm I have a, I have a ketone meter um but I'm I'm more interested in how my body feels and how my Um, emotions are more and how my cognitive speed is more than anything else.
1: Yeah, I think those things are, you know, like I said, we often measure things that are easy to measure and blood tests are easy to measure. But what are the you know, what are they actually truly telling us? And I think a lot of people get, they try to interpret too much into the significance of those things. and, and, And just realizing that those things can vary, tremendously day to day. And that's why I don't get too excited. I mean, I had my, you know, my coronary artery calcium scan done, uh, back in August ah. after, after, you know, two years of 20, you know, 25 times the average daily American red meat intake, you know, and, you know, surely, surely red meat was going to cause something bad. And so when I got that done, I mean, it was perfectly clear. I mean, there was zero calcification. I had a you know, just a perfect score on that, that cardiac test. And so, you know, it's not a perfect test. There, there are some things potentially that it might miss, but I mean, generally that's recognized as one of the better, if not the best test to look at cardiovascular risk factors. And so, I mean, those are the things that are, you know, like I said, what is reflective of what's going on in your body, um, you know, over the long haul. And it's not what your LDL was on Tuesday. It's what your body composition is for the last six months. And I think those things are more reflective of your chronic state of health uh, than than these things that are just easily measurable, but you know are highly variable, highly, very dynamic, and the import is un, really unknown.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing too is you know as I as I go into day nine, you know, um, eating in this way, and as I you know as I cook meat twice a day. Uh, at home, and my wife rolls her eyes again, and um, uh, I, I do my thing. Uh, I I think that I think that there's a value. I think that there's a, there's an important uh, element of of experimenting with different techniques and approaches. Um, to diet and exercise, and it just so happens, it just seems like this is working for so many people. Are, are, there, are there folks, is there a type of person, is there a person that, that has certain ailments or something that, that maybe the carnivore diet would not work for?
1: You know, I think there are people that have uh, issues with digestion that make it more difficult, you know, people that you know have been on chronic uh, acid-suppressing drugs, Sometimes people that, that get older, they, they lose some capacity to diet, well digest meat, and that's just a consequence of you know chronic exposure to probably poor diet and other lifestyle things that, that make it more of a challenge for sure. I mean, there's people that you know a lot a lot of older people they lose all their damn teeth because sugar rots them out, and then they have a hard time chewing, and so those, I mean those things can make it more challenging. Um, I think that. Uh, you know, I, I, I think from from the normal spectrum of human physiology, no, I don't think there's any people that, you know, can't do the diet. You know, certainly there are places where it's cost prohibitive. There are places where it's culturally frowned upon. Uh, you know, there are individual households where it's individual, where it's frowned upon. So those things can be challenging for people. And there's a lot of people that really get a lot of validation externally from other people. And, you know, they, they sometimes can't overcome those pressures. Um, back to your point about cooking, you know, for me, I find it pretty easy. I mean, I throw a steak on a grill and, you know, 15 minutes later, I got a nice steak and, and, and the cleanup's nothing. And, you know, I use one dish, one fork, one, one, one knife. And I mean, that's, you know, I don't find it to be that challenging, you know, as far as that, but I, but I do think, you know, we should value, you know, cooking our food and and getting our nourishment and procuring that and, 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 you know, ingesting that rather than just you know, opening up another package and just slopping it down and eating some cheap refined crap, which is what we've been indoctrinated, acculturated to do through decades of just being used to doing that. You know, we don't even think about food. We just us, open up the cabinet, let's tear open a package, don't read, who knows what the ingredients are. Well, it really tastes good because it's been en- engineered to taste good and it satisfies that you know, three seconds of gustatory delight and, and you know, but, but not, but nothing else. There's no, there's no nutrition beyond that. And so I do think that maybe, maybe the fact that it's a little bit of a pain makes you think more about what you're, what yeah. you're putting into your body.
0: That is an excellent point. And Sean, not all of us get to live, well, get to live. I can live wherever I want. Not all of us do live in Southern California where you can just step out into our backyard and fire up the grill. Like it's cold, and, <laughs> cold and rainy up here in Seattle. So I got to cook inside. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah i mean it does it can smoke up the house if you're if you saute if you're you know you know searing steaks on there but i mean yeah you, know, <laughs> you know and i've used this thing called an air fryer which actually works pretty well it's pretty convenient so that might be a recommendation for you those work it's not my favorite way to make steaks but it does a pretty decent job a pretty solid job quite honestly and it's it's very convenient
0: yeah i i've i've, I've seen those rise in popularity I, I think it's probably time to check it out and and, and to your point you know you're right. Um learning learning how to cook a steak well, not well done, but just learning how to effectively cook a steak uh to the way that you like it. Um being um being aware of the food that you're eating um is an important thing and you're right. We we we've, we've, we are so detached from, you know, I don't know how you grew up eating, but the way that I grew up eating was vegetables came in a can, chicken came out of a freezer bag and a potato came out of the backyard and that was basically what I ate my entire childhood was chicken, you know, it had skin on it and bone in breasts. Um, but, um, you know, the vegetables came from a can and it was pretty, was pretty one dimensional and it was pretty, pretty, pretty nutrient depleted, I think to a lar- to a large extent. Um, uh, I'm curious, how did, how did you, how did you grow up eating? Is 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 this approach uh, much of a deviation from from the way that you learned how to eat uh, in, in earlier in your life?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, you know, I I grew up in the you know I was born in '67, so I grew up in the '70s, and you know, it was cereal and Frosted Flakes and Lucky Charms and Cocoa Pebbles and you know, Fruity Pebbles and Count chocolate for breakfast, and then probably some kind of bologna sandwich for lunch and, you know, and unfortunately my mom, I'm a big, big guy, but my mom was not much of a cook. She once told me she thought food was a waste of money. She'd rather spend it on clothes. And so that was, (laughs) you know, I mean, somebody likes to eat that wasn't really very particularly encouraging, but so not really any, any really, you know, great foods over the years. I mean, I, I ate probably pretty average diet growing up and then, you know, and then as I got older and started taking care of my own food, I tended to think I ate healthier. You know, I ate, you know, what, what, largely what we're recommended to eat with uh lots of grains and you know fruits and vegetables lots of lots of fruits and uh you know lean dairy i used to eat just tons of yogurt you know lean yogurt i remember you know but of course it was filled with sugar and you know that sort of stuff which i didn't really realize was an issue uh and you know and and i ate that way until i was you know in my mid-40s and you know and, and it served me okay i mean i never got sick and 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 I was able to perform as an athlete and, you know, I worked out really hard and, you know, had a pl- belief that, you know, it didn't, didn't matter what I ate as long as I trained hard, hard enough. And, you know, eat your dessert first cause life's too short and that sort of stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, that worked until I was about 42, 43 and then, then it didn't work anymore. And then it started to catch up with me and, uh, you know, and then I started to have to say, wait a minute, I, I just can't continue doing this. And, 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 you know, here I am now, 10 years later and, you know, eating a bunch of meat, like a crazy person.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, I'm curious. I've got, uh, I know you have, you have, um, you have a, a a child and I have two at home here too. And, <clears throat> you know, for, for as much as I know about diet and nutrition and exercise and running podcasts and um, coaching people and doing that thing and, and, and also a lifetime athlete, like I thought I was doing a pretty good job. Um, and I think I still do, you know, how I feed, how I feed my kids. They don't, they don't get sugar. In the morning for sure If they don't get cereal We do do Saturday morning They get cereal on Saturday mornings Because it's, you know, sort of fun But obviously I get a little nervous about like Am I using, I'm celebrating with sugary garbage um, But I'm curious about And and I'm, I'm sure it's speculative Because I'm, I'm sure there's not that many Carnivore studies for children But um, uh, I'd love to hear your ideas On on how to feed how to feed kids, and how to give them give them proper nutrition with all of you know about the carnivore diet?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think if we go back to like work, work guys like Weston A. Price, I mean, certainly when when he studied, you know, children of indigenous populations that were eating meat based, you know, meat, super meat heavy diets, they were robust and healthy and weren't, weren't suffering from any deficiencies. So I, I certainly think that can be a very good strategy. You know, with my own kids, I mean, I prioritize animal nutrition, whether it's meat, eggs, you know, some dairy. They eat their fill of that. I load them up. I eat them. I let them eat as much as they want. And and often that's all they'll want to eat. But beyond that, you know, then it, then it just becomes other whole foods, whether it's fruits. Uh, they probably prefer fruits to vegetables, which is not surprising at all. Um, you know, I don't force them to eat, you know, vegetables. I, I don't necessarily think they're anything special quite honestly i know that's controversial but i don't really see that beyond uh, i think if you load them up on animal nutrition then then they're done then they're good and then anything they want to eat beyond that you know just for energy purposes is fine um they will occasionally eat you know a little bit of junky stuff you know when they're out with their friends or they're at school unfortunately going to school is kind of like a you know, it's unavoidable. There's so many teachers that have cupcake parties and pizza parties that, that that stuff becomes, you know, it's just really hard to get around that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they prioritize, you know, they eat, you know, just lots and lots of animal, animal nutrition, you know. And the nice thing about it for me is like when I'm watching them on the weekend, I'll cook them up on, on. you know, maybe bacon and eggs and some steak for breakfast Maybe have some yogurt or something like that and load those kids up. I'll eat and I'll tell them to eat, eat, eat till they're completely full. And then I don't hear from them from till the rest to the end of the day till dinner time. Whereas a normal kid is like, you know, it's kind of like we've gotten to this point where like when I was a kid, there was a concept that you're going to spoil your appetite for dinner. And so you didn't snack nowadays. It's like, oh my God, don't let your blood glucose get, get, get even slightly low. We got to keep you yeah. continuously you know, fed with snacks, and so there's snacks everywhere. Snack time every, you know, every hour you gotta have a snack, and that has become the sort of the norm, which is, in my view, you know, really a problematic, and it's it's leading to not only the obesity problems we have, but a lot of the chronic diseases, and probably some of the behavioral behavioral issues that go with that, because we're feeding these kids non-nutritious foods that are high in calories, but you know, mostly just junk. You know, and it's these vegetable oils, these seed oils high fructose corn syrup, you know, highly refined grain products, uh, you know, and, and sometimes they'll say organic on there, or sometimes they'll say with, with fruit juice added, or they'll have some natural claim, which is basically bogus. Uh, but that's what we're we're faced with. And, you know, I find that, like I said, you load those kids up on a, you know, my, it's unfortunate for me because I taught my little daughters, I've got two beautiful daughters that, you know, I taught them about the different parts of the ribeye and about the rib cap and what's the best tasting peeps. And so whenever I'm sitting down to eat a ribeye, my daughters will come sliding up and they'll start asking for those specific cuts so I have to sacrifice <laughs> to sacrifice that for my kids. So, you know, it's kind of funny. But no, that I think that's I, I think kids should be eating a meat heavy diet, uh, animal source diet uh, from the beginning. As soon as they're able to wean off of uh, breast milk, uh, that's where they should start. And they should they should continue that as opposed to going on the grain, grain heavy cereal rice based diet. Uh, sugar-based diet that that so many of us get put on as
0: kids. Yeah, I it yeah, at my house um I've got a 2-year-old and a 5-year-old and um they eat their meat first. And this is not without any coaching. You know, they've they've got they've got protein. We don't do many grains. You know, we probably do like white rice. Um twice a week, but mostly it's, you know, it's, uh, protein and vegetables and my kids always eat the meat first. And then they do the same thing. They look at my plate and they ask for pieces of my steak. Uh, and then, yeah, they, they obviously kids don't like vegetables, so they don't eat it. And then, um, you know, it's this battle between, should I make them eat it? Like they don't want to eat it. They'd rather eat more of my steak than touch you know, the, the sauteed broccoli and butter, you know, obviously I cook with a ton of butter and have been eating ketogenically for a long time, um, a couple of years, at least eighty twenty, And, uh, yeah, it's like they're following their instincts a little bit. You can actually watch their little brains like, Oh, this meat is good. I like it tastes good. Uh, it's satiating. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's nice to hear that you're not forcing them to eat uh, vegetables, because maybe I should adopt that at my house and just say, Hey, if you don't want them, you don't have to eat them. Here's how have four blueberries and call it good.
1: Yeah. I mean, if we look at the economics of eating, I mean, meat has always been prized, but it's expensive. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, you know, we are very fortunate today that we have such a uh, tremendous production system that that so many people can enjoy it. But in the past, I mean, You know, ruminant animals, particularly cows, were not utilized that much because, you know, most people that had them, you know, before, you know, larger scale production, these were working animals. They plowed your fields, you know, and you didn't eat the cow because, you know, until he was 25 years old, ready to drop dead. And so, you know, much of people being, you know, raised, you know, would be, you know, eat a lot of grains. You know, it's not much nutrition, but it'll keep you from starving. Eat a little, a few pieces of meat here and there and then vegetables. In fact, in some places, you know, I think in in Europe up until, you know, even a few hundred years ago, vegetables were considered kind of peasant food. And if you serve them in a setting where, you know, like a, like a a aristocracy setting, it would be considered almost insulting to the, to the guests that you serve them vegetables. And so they haven't always had this exalted place on the plate that they do now. And I think that is, uh, I think there's a reason for that and I think a lot of that is just because you know you just had to, you got to put you got to put filler in people just fill them up with something fill them up with fiber fill them up with grains fill them up with vegetables it'll fill a hole but it won't provide the nourishment that you could get out of a high quality animal product and I think the one thing about the carnivore diet is it is just probably the most nutritious diet out there it's just purely concentrated you know highly bioavailable highly appropriate you know, when we talk about protein in particular and, and fats, uh, nu- nutrition, and it, it, it fills all the bills, you know, ultimately, and it's just so well tolerated, so well absorbed, so well digested that once people do it, it's like, wow, this is like nutrition, you know, I know it's an over, overused cliche, but it's like nutrition on steroids, uh, because you, you're just getting such a high quality amount of, uh, of, of nutrition.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk through that a little bit more, because I would like, I would like to to hear some more, and I know that you know you've done four podcasts already today on this stuff. Um, but I'd love to to talk about um, you know the sort of physiological digestion and and the use of of the you know. And I forgot to ask the first question before I ask the next question, Sean. Uh, the one question that I always start out with is, "What did you eat today? What What did you put into your body?" It's ten. It's eleven o'clock um, Pacific Standard Time. What uh, What have you eaten today?
1: Yeah, today was quite a good day. Since my last day of being fifty-one, so I celebrated with a three-point-two-pound uh, bone-in tomahawk ribeye, which I cooked on the grill topped with a little salt and butter, and that was my that was my breakfast, and it was damn delicious. I'll tell you that.
0: <laughs> nice. That sounds great.
1: And then yeah, then I oh, yeah I had a little bit of Greek yogurt right after that too. I forgot, and I should mention that too. But that that's what I've eaten today. That may I probably later today will I might eat some salmon, and maybe I might have a little. I've got some uh, sirloin steak that I might I might have this afternoon, you know, later this evening, depending on how hungry I'm.
0: What about uh, beverages? Are you, are you a coffee guy? You know, I've never liked coffee, and
1: so people ask me about coffee on a carnivore diet, and I and I always have to say I always have to prep the fact that I never like coffee, so I never drank it. Um, so uh, just water so far today, and it's pretty much ninety nine point nine percent of what I drink.
0: Yeah, I had uh, um. Uh, I had uh boneless short ribs and then I had a piece of uh New York steak from the night before and, um, and, and locks too. you know, some wild caught smoked salmon, um, and coffee. Um, okay. So, so Sounds great. yeah, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm in a pretty good mood. Um, uh, when it comes to the usage, because I think this is fascinating and, and, I, and I know that there are hundreds of thousands of people ex- experiencing this very same thing uh, right now, which is the bowel movements and how your bowel movements change. And I, and I first uh, talked with uh, Dr. John Jaquish, who is the, the founder of Osteo Strong and the creator of the X3 Bar, which is, which is how I've been working out for the last little bit. And he's he's eating carnivore too, of course. And uh, he was talking about his his bowel movements, and he was saying like they it's it may be shocking, but they they there are fewer of them, and there is less material. And I was like, really? Why is that? And he's like, because I'm using all of it. Like I'm my body, from the top of my head to the tips of my toes, is using just about every little piece of of the, of the steaks that I eat. And that's what I eat is I eat steaks. You know, he's doing OMAD one meal a day, um, you know, two or three steaks at a time. And he's, and and it's changed dramatically. Can you, can you, and I, and I'm experiencing the same thing and it's a little unusual. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about how our body uses, uses the meat and how effective it is, uh, as far as, um, you know, we're using all the different pieces of, of this steak that we eat
1: yeah, I mean that is it's kind of been a bit of misconception because people will say, well, it's constipated because constipated because you don't have bowel movements, and, and and what he's experiencing is what what's very common for most people. Although some people will notice something a little different, but for the most part, um, and we know this looking at patients that have had their colon removed and they have something called an ileostomy, so we can see what leaves the small intestine. And when you eat just meat, basically, there's really nothing that gets out of the small intestine; it's almost all absorbed except for a small there's a small amount of liquid residue that gets out. And so basically you have really very little to eliminate, you know, and then so uh, if you contrast that to a higher fiber diet, when, when you have, you know, you just have, you know, three times as much, four times as much, five times as much stuff material to get rid of because you're wasting it all. You know, one of the interesting things is we talk about food waste in this country. And, you know, if we look at our landfills, something like 40% of that, Landfill from food comes from fruits and vegetables and and, and baked goods, uh, and and then when we look in what goes it goes in the toilet, the rest of it goes down the toilet in fiber that we can't digest, and so it's kind of funny, but you know it's true that meat is extremely well absorbed. I mean, our body is so efficiently designed. I mean, we're literally designed to digest and absorb meat extremely well, extremely efficiently. That's why we have a gastric acid of 1.5 or so, one of the most acid environments in all of the animal kingdom. It's on par with things like hyenas and and vultures. Um, our, our, our stomach acid is more acidic than even many of the other carnivores. In fact, you know, if we go back into Ice Age Europe and we look at some of the stable radioisotope data, it shows that human beings ate probably more meat than top level carnivores like wolves. I mean, that's, that's what's clear. And so um, we're well set up to that. Uh, you know, if we, and particularly animal protein, you know, they're, they're again, looking at these ileostomy studies, they've, they've compared uh, beef protein to soy protein. And when they compare how much protein actually makes it out of the small intestine, soy protein has a significantly increased amount because you can't digest soy as well. And there's things called protease inhibitors, which prevent, you know, the, the breakdown of the proteins. And so what you see is in contrast to people talking about meat rotting in your colon, if you want to talk about a protein source that makes it to the colon, it's going to be soy. It's going to be more so. And so anybody that talks about the fact that protein is, is acted upon by colonic bacteria and uh, liberating materials like putrescine or cadaverine, it's going to be the soy proteins that do that even more so because those are the protein sources that are not absorbed as well uh, via the small intestine. But but truly, yeah, what, what Dr. Jakish said, I'm not sure if I'm saying that pronounced, I'm aware, I'm kind of aware of him, I've seen some of his stuff, but, um, is absolutely correct, you are fully absorbing that nutrition, and you know, the the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization is going to, uh, they're going to revise the method by which they assess food protein uh, quality, and they're going to go from something called the Protein Digestibility Index, uh, to the, uh, I'm trying to think what it's called now. it's called it's called the indispensable amino acid uh, digestibility. And they look they looked at initially, they used to look at the protein that was left over in in the stool. And the problem with that is that it overestimated that based on uh, stuff that was happening with the microbiome because some of the protein was being uh, lost through the microbiome. And so that overestimated plant-based proteins and underestimated animal-based proteins. But when they look at the uh, absorb absorbability in the ileum, which is what they're looking at now, which doesn't, you know, deal with the microbiome losses. Then they show that uh, animal-based proteins are far, far superior than plant-based proteins as far as digestibility and absorbability. So it's kind of interesting. We'll see that come out in the uh, in the coming years. As they adopt this policy. The- that was a little bit in the weeds. Yeah.
0: That was good. That was good. I was, I was taking notes. That's why I got so quiet over here. (laughs) Uh, No, that was perfect. Um, The, the sensation is not of constipation. It's, I don't have that at all. Uh, And I have, again, eating keto for, for years, you know, I'm a, I'm a usually good for, you know, two movements a day, one right after the coffee and then one, you know, a little after breakfast. And what's happening now is like, I, it's not constipation because I don't feel like I need to go like at all. Like I, you know, I had one, one movement this morning again after coffee before breakfast and I don't have this, I don't have a bloated feeling. I don't have a full stomach feeling like I need to go. And that's different to, to, to go so little and I know I'm only nine days in, you know, you're sitting over there two years in thinking like, well, dude, get, you know, relax. <laughs> you're just getting started. But you know, it's not, it's, I don't have an urge to go. It's, it really does feel like I'm, like I'm all set. Uh, I don't need, I don't need to go. It's, it's, yeah, that's, it's,
1: that. that's, that's one of the things a lot of people, because they're so used to a, a sort of a ritual, a morning ritual or every day or twice a day. So they'll go and they'll sit on the toilet and nothing will come out. And they'll say, well, I must be constipated because nothing came out. Well, I mean, no, that's not what's going on. You're not constipated. You just don't have anything to get rid of because you've absorbed it all. And so that's a, that's something that, you know, it's just a habit that people have to realize that, you know, when you need to go, you'll go. Uh, but it may take, you know, particularly when people first start to diet, some people, it takes them several days or a week or more before they even have enough material accumulated that they can have a bowel movement. it's not because they're backed up. It's just that there's just literally nothing to, to get rid of.
0: It's fascinating. I mean it. It is. It is such a, it is such a difference. Uh, yeah. It's really. It's really amazing. Can we talk a little bit about the, um, the, you know, I, I heard. I heard Doctor Tara Patrick. I think it was on the Rogan podcast talking about how, um, you know, everybody's interested in this now. Like you've you've made you've made some serious waves. It, it's working. People are inspired. They're adopting the carnivore approach. It's working for them. They're you know they're getting rid of medications and their autoimmune problems and stuff like that. And and now I imagine that there are lots and lots of people that are either studying it or looking at studying it. And one of the things that I think she mentioned was that it, like, why does this work? Well, it, it one of the claims she made was that it's almost like an elimination diet. And I just recently had done an elimination diet to deal with a candida overgrowth in my gut that was leading to, uh, dermatitis on my face. And, um, so, uh, the elimination diet was basically protein and, and vegetables, and now it's just protein. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the correlation between how this mimics a, an elimination diet and, and, and why, why, I mean, without being too general, how it works and why it works?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, we, we need to study it formally to, to really answer the, some of these questions. But I mean, certainly, it is an elimination diet when you when you look at it. I mean, and so, uh, you know, you're you know, first of all, you're getting rid of what I think is a lot of garbage out of the diet, which would be these toxic seed oils, you know, a lot the sugary stuff, the refined grains. I think that's even even sort of vegan proponents will say get rid of that stuff for your diet. So I think that happens first of all. I think that. Uh, um, you know, when we go back and just to use a historical or evolutionary example, I mean, you know, it's human beings weren't running around at Whole Foods buying avocado toast and avocados and blueberries and all these. I mean, this wasn't viable. This wasn't a real realistic option. And so when we think about what could humans have realistically eaten for the, you know, the whatever you want to say, homo sapiens, 300,000 years and, and human beings, 3 million years. I mean, it would have been largely these big grazing animals, which were ubiquitous and, you know, maybe they got some berries here and there, maybe they got some, you know, they, they dug up some some tubers once in a while, and, and mind you, most of those tubers back then were extremely fibrous and not very starchy, so they would have been very low energy yield, so the, the, the incentive to do that would not be that high, particularly when you've got access to a wonderful fatty megafaunal animal, which would provide you really with all your nutrition needs, and so... Um, so yeah, it does act as an elimination diet, and I think it eliminates a lot of things we we're probably not well designed to eat, and probably among those things might be grains. Some people would argue that that the the adoption widespread, wide wide scale adaptation of agriculture back ten twelve thousand years ago was, you know, it was not done after randomized control trials, you know, demonstrated that it was superior. It was done out of desperation because we ran out of all these. Megafaunal animals in our population started to grow you know too big and we had to support ourselves some way but you know as far as other things you know there is evidence that that, you know leaky gut is a uh which refers to intestinal permeability is a mechanism by which many diseases occur so particularly autoimmune diseases arguably some of the mental health diseases and and you know many of the other ones some of the joint joint pain maybe initiates in there and so um There is pretty good evidence, at least from a group in Hungary called the pale Medicina Group that's demonstrating that a uh, all meat-based diet does very good at restoring gut permeability or you know, normalizing it so you're not leaking anymore. That occurs. Uh, certainly, like we talked about earlier, with the superior nutrition that animal nutrition provides. So I think it's a combination of those things uh, that uh, you know that and the fact that it's a higher protein diet when it comes to, you know, weight loss. You know, for a lot of people who are losing weight, we know that protein, even the people that are diehard calories in, calories out people will concede that you've got to normalize protein, you've got to match protein. But when you increase the protein, you can eat more and still lose weight. And I think that's pretty well demonstrated in the literature. And and now the question about whether carbohydrates can do the same thing by, by eliminating carbohydrates, that certainly is debatable, but there is certainly evidence, you know, and, and I'll certainly point to David Ludwig's most recent study done, I think, published in October or November this year where they showed that uh, people on a maintenance phase on a low-carbohydrate diet, you know, had something like a 200 to 400-calorie increase in in their metabolic rate, you know, depending on how insulin-sensitive they were. So I think there's a lot of mechanisms potentially why it's happening, you know. Uh, you know, in animal studies, uh, substances like carnitine have been shown to amply ramp up metabolic rate. Now, whether that happens in humans or not is still unknown. Uh, there's some people that believe it does. And so I think there's a whole host of reasons. I don't think this is one thing. And I think over time, hopefully, as people are willing to study this, I know there are some people out there that are looking at studying this. I do think we'll, we'll slowly get some studies on this over time, particularly as more and more people adopt it. And particularly as more and more people have good results, which seems to be the case. I mean, my having done this for, you know, a couple of years now. I mean, consistently the results are consistently good for the majority of the people, which I think is 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 pretty powerful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty powerful. I I really hope I really hope that there are there are some widespread studies coming because the proof is in the pudding when when you have Thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people who are reporting these massive changes in their in, in the way that they look and the way that they feel and the way that they um, live their life uh, There's there's the science is just shortly to come I think after that um, one thing that I've that I've noticed, you know, just sort of cyber stalking you on Instagram like so many, so many other people is Uh, When people ask really intricate questions, and by the way, your uh, your Instagram live sessions are are awesome. On the way to the gym to deadlift seven thousand pounds, but uh, no, I'll take a minute and answer some questions. And when people ask questions like, you know, um, you know, hey, uh, I'm I'm eating pork rinds, you know, it's they're they're chicharrones, no added salt, you know, are these okay? And your your answer invariably is, "Uh, I wouldn't live on them. <laughs> and there's so there's so many intricate questions around people that that want you to like give them every every answer and it seems like it's really common sense and and the way that you handle those questions is is really fair and measured and polite it's just like I mean no you shouldn't live off of only you know pork rinds but you know if you need a little crunch every here now do do thing you know i i I really appreciate that it is it is. Uh, I don't know. I guess there's not a question there. That's just a comment.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, the, the point about common sense, and, and like I said, this isn't, uh, you know, and I'll be the first one to know that I don't know the answers. Hell, I don't think anyone does. I mean, I'm, I'm doing my best, I, the best I can knowing what I do and trying to guide people in a reasonable sense. And I think it's something that, you know, ultimately I tell people, you've got to assess objectively what it does to you. And, you know, I, I don't think it's that, that, it's that hard to do you know the elimination diet aspect of it kind of gets you a good baseline it makes it easy and so i tell most people because i always get people asking me can i eat this can i eat that is this carnivore is that not carnivore and you know i will say well technically if it's not from an animal it's not carnivore but you need to assess what these foods do to you and if you want to eat raspberries or avocado or supplement with mct oil or drink heavy cream in your coffee then just objectively assess that you know it, i can't tell you the answer what's going to happen in your body only you can determine that and you just gotta you know you've got to just sort of ob- objectively assess that and i think the only way to do that is to eliminate it and then add it back in and i think that's just i could just pin that as a pin get a robot to say that for me every time one of those questions comes up and it's true i get a lot of those questions but you know it's kind of funny i mean at least it's not When I first started this, I used to get questions every day about scurvy and vitamin C and how do you go to the bathroom. And and I think that knowledge is getting out there for many people where there's enough people that kind of, you know, share that knowledge so so that there's so many people that know the answer to this now that I don't have to continue to answer the question. But as a physician, I mean, I used to see the same problem every day, 20 times a day, whether it was a rotator cuff problem or or a meniscus problem. And I mean, I'd have to tell this. I'd have to tell the same answer to every person over and over again. So I'm not. I'm I'm conditioned to keep answering the same question over and over. I know it seems like it might be frustrating, but <laughs> I, I just uh, sometimes you know, like some people will, will, will write on my Instagram wall or page or whatever it is, and they'll ask a question. And I know there's like seven thousand people that follow me that know the answer to that. And sometimes I rely on those guys to answer it for me because I can't yeah. be. I, I, it just becomes overwhelming. I can't answer every single question. I try to answer as many as I can to people that directly message me, but you know, at some point it gets to where you know I'd be doing nothing else. I wouldn't even be, I wouldn't even have time to eat if I kept answering all the questions. And so, hopefully, as my book gets out, you know, a lot of those questions will be answered for people. Uh, that hopefully will be you know a resource that people can utilize and uh, you know get some of the knowledge out there and uh, hopefully again improve more people's health.
0: Yeah. Tell us about the book. What's the, what's the timeline on that bad boy?
1: Uh, I think the, the publisher has it. I just sent the final, I I hope the final copy to the publisher the other day or the editor the other day. And so she'll have it for, I don't know, a week or so. And you know, maybe some little last minute changes or additions or subtractions. I'm not sure. And then hopefully they'll, they'll start the publishing process and the printing and, you know, doing that stuff. And I think that takes a couple months. So I think it's projected to come out around April, I think. Um, I know it's available for pre-order. I know lots, lots, and lots of people have pre-ordered it. I know that uh, companies like Barnes and Nobles have ordered a, a large amount. They expect it to sell pretty well, so that's encouraging for me. And you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of quite a bit of information in there about some of the science, some of the you know evolutionary perspective, historical perspective, you know, some of the reasons like we talked about why it may impact the disease the way it does, some of the success stories. How to implement it? Some of the common issues that occur. Um, how to deal with those? You know, some just some tips and stuff like that, and, and mm-hmm. a lot of visual guides. Um, but you know, again, it's 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 designed for a broad audience that, that that's maybe not familiar with the carnivore diet. So I had to write to those people because I think those are the people that are going to most, you know, benefit from that. You know, people that have already done the diet for, you know, six months, kind of got the deal. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. I mean, I, I literally said I could written I could have written the the book in one page and said, eat, drink, you know, eat, meat, drink water, any questions? And I mean, that would have been the end of the book. But I mean, you know, at the same, but then there's invariably a bunch of questions that come up, even though, you know, if I had to explain my, if I had explain a diet to a, to a lion or a zebra or, or a cow or a dog, I mean, I'd say, here, go eat this. And that would be it. They go do it and they'd be fine. But human beings, you know, it seems like you gotta, you know, even the most simple things on earth become very complicated for people.
0: Do you have a do you have a title for the book and and where can people go f- uh, find it pre-order it?
1: Um it's called The Carnivore Diet by Sean Baker MD. It's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Noble's. It's if you go on my Instagram, Sean SHAWN Baker B-N-K-E-R, 1967, it's in my bio. There's a link for that. So that's up there. I'll probably promote it a little bit more as it gets closer. I know the publisher's going to want me to do that because they want to they want to make money on it. So <laughs> Yeah. I'll probably well, I'll probably do some I might you know, maybe I'll do a, you know, maybe I'll do a book tour with this depending on what the demand's like and I'm hoping that vegans will come out and protest it. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be good publicity. Oh so my God. You vegans out there listening.
0: Sean, come to come, Seattle. Please come out I'll, and protest it. Come out come up to Seattle and you, you wanna find some vegans, man. Come to Seattle. Come to Seattle. I'll help you find a place. We'll do a book tour. Uh I'll uh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah Yeah, I mean yeah, this would be this would I'm, I, you're bound to have protesters uh, if uh, if you come to a, a book a book stop in Seattle. Um, uh, I didn't I don't I I did have this question written down earlier and I didn't I didn't mean to like skip over it and I you know we're on such a good groove I hate to kind of go back to something like this kind of toward the end of the podcast but, um, you know some of the things that I've seen you talk about regarding um, you know, uh the cost of meat production on the planet and some of the misconceptions that we have around methane gas and cow farts and stuff like that. Um, that that's obviously a major, uh, signpost for vegans and folks like that who want to make a case for not harming animals and not harming the planet. Um, can you give us a little bit of your thoughts and insights around, um, the issue of, uh, because if everybody gets into this and this becomes wildly popular, there's going to be more of a demand on, on, uh, on cattle raising. Can, can you talk a little bit about, about how you like to think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. I mean, first of all, just being alive as a human being, irrespective of your diet is, is going to harm animals. I mean, just anything you have as a consumable good, is causing death destruction to, to to habitat, to animals. Um and then when it goes to diet, it doesn't matter what you eat. You are you are directly contributing to the death of animals. And so this guilt-free I do the least harm thing is really you know not much. It's not making much difference. Um, you know, and arguably, you know, if 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 you decide to eat a, a fully carnivorous diet and you decide just to eat grass finished, you know, uh, free ranging animals, then, you know, your harm to the to the to the animal sentience amount is very minimal. It's much lower than than somebody who is eating a plant-based or a vegan diet. Now not everybody does that and most people will eat beef that comes from the supermarket. So the argument is, well the crops that are being raised to feed the animals also harm, you know, these small animals. but but at the end of the day, realistically, particularly if you choose beef, I mean, most people, their beef consumption would be about one cow a year. So that's one more animal you're killing uh, in addition to the, the the hundreds of thousands of little small field mice and insects and whatever else gets killed in, in, in the grain process. So it's not much difference. But when we go to the environmental aspect, you know, the, 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 the war cry among these vegan activists and, and particularly the, the, the processed food fake meat companies, which are heavily invested in, in, to the tune of billions of dollars, which are. Propping up this message is that not eating meat would be the best thing we could possibly do for the environment, which is absolutely uh, a complete fabrication. You know, the best thing you could do is just not have another child. You could, you know, convert your home to solar. You could, uh, you know, stop taking plane trips. I mean, those things would have a bigger impact. But at the same time, we have to eat as human beings. I mean, there's no that's not negotiable. You have to eat. And so, of the things you can choose not to do, you don't have to take a transatlantic flight you know, maybe you can do your business on a Skype call for, for one trip out of the year. And that would have the same amount of impact of going vegan would have. But more importantly, the, the statistics and the numbers that the vegan activists quote are just wrong. I mean, they're flat out wrong. I mean, there's a movie called Cowspiracy, which, which came out, I don't know, a decade ago or something like that, in which they claim that 51% of all greenhouse gases were emitted from animal agriculture. Well, that's clearly been proven to be patently false that study has been dismissed by everybody that knows anything about it the food the un and the fao which is a food and agriculture organization did a study in 2016 where they claimed that now it's 18 percent. and that's still a pretty decent amount but then that study had to be retracted even further because they failed they failed to realize that they did a life cycle assessment on animals but they didn't do a life cycle assessment on any other industry or transportation so they weren't even comparing apple to apples and so then they re Revised those claims, they found that the life cycle impact of animal agriculture is still 14%, which is not nothing. I mean, it's still a decent amount of of environmental greenhouse gases. The direct emissions, by the way, if, you, if we discount direct emissions, are only about 5%. But when we look at that 14%, and we and we have to compare where you live, what you what impact you have locally, and so. of the greenhouse gases produced by animal agriculture in the entire world are produced in developing and third world countries. And that's just because they have an incredibly inefficient way of of producing their animals. They're, they're they're very inefficient. It takes them, you know, in, in, in Europe and the, in the U S it takes a year or two to produce a cow for, for slaughter for beef in places like Africa. It might take 20 years to produce that same, same amount. So it's 20 years more environmental impact. And so, By going vegan, you'd have to tell these people in Sudan or Ethiopia, you guys need to go vegan because you guys are the main offenders. And what what's going to happen if those guys go vegan? They're just going to starve to death because they're already malnourished in a lot of those those developing countries. And so, but if we look at like the actual data, you can go to EPA.gov. You can look it up on the U.S. government website and look up the the emissions, you know, by sector greenhouse gas emissions by sector and if we look at in the united states all of agriculture that's plant that's animal, that's everything together is only nine percent animal agriculture only represents about four percent and then if we you know scale that down to cattle cattle only produce about 1.9 percent of the u.s greenhouse gases transportation produces about 26 percent industry is about 25 percent you know uh uh, energy production is about 30 percent so Animal agriculture, not, not eating a steak in Chicago, has minimal impact in the United States on what our greenhouse grass footprint would be. And in fact, there's been calculations done that if every single person in the United States were to go vegan, all of us, all 330 million of us, and at the same time all of the animals were to vanish completely and instantaneously from the environment, the difference in worldwide greenhouse gas uh, 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 production would only be 0.3%. So it's almost nothing, you know, it's, and so it, it's like it has no impact whatsoever. Again, if you want to go vegan, go, go vegan in the sedan, then you might have a bigger impact. But, I mean, that's, you know, that no one's going to tell people that. Most people in the world that eat a plant-based diet are doing so out of bare necessity because they're starving, and that's the only thing they have an option for. That is the that is reality of it. This Western uh, affluent country of, of choosing to go vegan is just merely – you know, it's a bunch of virtue signaling, basically, because you're not really making much difference. You know, the other argument is, well, you're killing the the, the Brazilian rainforest, right? So, there is some truth to that. So, planting soybean crops is killing Brazilian rainforest. But, again, not eating a steak in the United States has no impact on that. There's almost none of our beef comes from from Brazil. It's something like 0.5% of our beef is imported from Brazil. So, next to none of that. Uh, so it's really not going to have any impact. But more importantly, why are those soybeans being raised? It's not specifically so they can feed them to the cattle. Now, they do eat a lot of them. Uh, but what happens is we grow the, the soybeans for our consumption in the form of soybean oil. And then what's left over, the shoots, the stems, the leaves, uh, the ground up soy meal after the, the oil has been extracted is then fed to these cows. But the reason that they're being planted in the first place is for primarily for human consumption. Uh, but but in, you know independently and, and Brazil's got a lot of issues with corruption and government stuff and so that is a, is a, is a, again it's a region specific problem so going vegan in the Netherlands going vegan in in Europe in in England in the United States and Canada is not going to have any impact on that stuff and so this is this is the whole point of you know you're somehow saving the world Well, you're not you're not doing anything all you're doing is you're basically compromising your own nutrition and 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 you know that's that's a real issue here
0: that is that is such a clear explanation of the situation and the fact that you're able to cite you know i'm sure that the, the the fact that you're sharing those sorts of percentages and that it's that that it's that little of a difference is astounding and it and it only reinforces the importance of debunking the spoon-fed myths around around food and around uh, pollution and gas emissions from... Yeah, because I grew up uh, uh, with the understanding that pollution and methane emissions from cows were the, were the reason why there's a hole in the ozone, and... To, to have to hear it laid out like that from you if you want to be vegan and make a difference go go move to sedan that's that's a meme right there man you gotta if you haven't posted that anywhere that's that's a tweet for sure
1: yeah I, I i put that on instagram a while ago but i mean you know the other thing is when we talk about methane emissions and this is something that people don't understand you know people talk about well methane is you know 20 times more potent of a greenhouse gas you know as far as it's in as far as its impact when we talk about you know uh, climate change and, and there and there and clearly there are people that, that don't feel that man is really impacting the climate it's more solar flares and, and volcanic activity and so on and so forth and that's that's a different debate but but for the you know but the majority of people do feel that, that man is impacting the environment certainly we're polluting we shouldn't be doing that but methane you know if we look at methane emissions from cattle for the last 50 to 50 years or so it's been stable it hasn't changed at all that we we still have in the United States, we have less cattle now than we had in 1970. Uh, most people don't realize that. We, we've, what? We've dropped Yeah, we've dropped our cattle population by about 30% since, since about 1975. So we actually we, we make the same amount of meat because we're more efficient at it, but we've dropped the number of cattle. The methane huh. emissions from cattle has been pretty much stagnant. It has not changed in the last 50 years. What has happened is methane emissions have gone up, but what's happening is we're seeing – Increased leakage around natural gas sources uh, and so mining the natural the, the natural gases the leaks from the uh, Delivering that stuff. There's there's much more leakage than we thought and so those things that's where the real methane drivers. a lot of people don't understand that uh, Termites produce as much methane as cows do termites worldwide Because uh, th- they digest wood and the the same bacteria that you know cows utilize in their rumen that, that, that produce methane when they digest you know or, or act upon uh, those materials uh, are leached in the air. You know, if we have the wetlands, marshes, the ocean, those are all huge sources of methane. And so what do we do? Do we get rid of the oceans? Do we get rid of the uh, the wetlands? Do we, you know, rice farming. Rice farming emits a ton of methane as well. And so people don't talk about that because, you know, they they think cows are cute and cuddly and we shouldn't eat them. Um, but more importantly, methane is probably not the main issue. Methane's half-half-life in the atmosphere Is 12 years, which you think, well, that's kind of long, 12 years, but that's nothing compared to carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, when it goes in the atmosphere, stays around for thousands of years. And so when we compare the difference, carbon dioxide is a much more potent greenhouse gas just because of its half-life. And almost all of that carbon dioxide is coming through the burning of fossil fuels. And so that is really the real real driver of climate change if you believe there's a man-made source of that. And some, again, some people don't believe that. But if you believe that, it's fossil fuel burning. It's oil production. It's, you know, gasoline. It's your cars. And so that is by and far. And if you look at the International Panel on Climate Change, they'll, they'll clearly show you that, that that is the biggest contributor to greenhouse gas uh, change that we have. And that is has nothing to do with cattle or, or you know, land usage. We had, you know, uh, 150 years ago, we had 60 million buffalo roaming the plains of the United States, uh, which is almost as many cows as we have now. And and nothing changed back. There was no difference back then. And if we go back further in history, when we had the megafaunal animals before the megafaunal extinction, we had orders of magnitude more animals, big ruminant animals. Interesting fact, about 100,000 years ago, the, if we if we look at all the animals on Earth and we weigh them and we say this is what an elephant weighs and this is what a cat weighs and this is what a mouse weighs and we were take one representative animal and weigh them all up and, and say what is the average of all terrestrial animals on the Earth today it would be about 20 pounds right so if we take up all the animals add them up say what's the average weight it was 20 pounds if we were to go back 100,000 years ago the average weight of an animal would be 1,100 pounds. So we had, our Earth was teeming with megafaunal animals. These huge mammoths were everywhere. These huge short-faced bears and, you know, woolly rhinoceroses and glyptodons and all these things were everywhere. And they were all producing methane. They were all grazing animals. And the climate was, I and mean, we were in an ice age back then. And so, you know, it's it's kind of, it's it's laughable to think that, you know, the fact that we have a billion cows now and, and, and that's driving all of our global climate change. It's completely laughable. Uh, but there's people that are bought into that and it's not uh, it's based on ideology it's based on a, a a religious belief that we should not harm animals or sentient beings and we should not eat them and it's you know it's really it's really become a religion and it's and it's very pervasive pervasive and the people that are uh, out there with that message are very persuasive and they're but they're putting out basically propaganda and they're doing it 24/7 and they're propped up by you know, these these processed food companies that stand to make a killing. When you when you stop eating steak, you're gonna eat processed food. You're not gonna eat beans. You're gonna eat some processed food, sugary, oil-rich bar, because you're gonna need the energy. Because you think about what your what you get from a steak from an energy and a nutrition standpoint, you can't produce it in beans and, and kale. Uh, you know, particularly the satisfaction or the um, you know the, the energy portion. So you're gonna get it through sugar. Sugar is the most Energy dense, most economical product to produce out there for crops. So, if you want energy and calories, grow sugar. That's the most productive thing you can do.
0: Dude, fascinating. Oh my gosh. Just breaking it all the way down right there, Sean. What do you think is going to happen when these giant meat producers, and they already have, you know, allocated budget to these clean meat initiatives? Does, do, do you have any, do you have any vision about how that's going to, how that's going to pan out?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I mean, I think, you know, there, there's, there's meat alternatives, which are, you know, the, the beyond meat things, the impossible burger, which is just, you know, a bunch of plant proteins, you know, mixed with some sort of vegetable oil, you know, with a bunch of supplements thrown in there. And that, that to me is just absolute garbage nutrition. I don't think any, that's, I don't, I don't foresee, that being a, a long-term viable thing, although there's people that really believe in that and there's a lot of money being poured in that. I know like Impossible Foods, so this is an interesting thing. Uh, I just talked about this with uh, Diana Rogers on our podcast today earlier. And so uh, a guy named Patrick Brown, who is the CEO of Impossible Foods, right? So he is a he is a vegan activist. His goal, he just stated his goal and he feels the number one priority on Earth is to end animal agriculture. And that is his stated goal for the, the mission of his company by the year 2035. He founded a uh, scientific journal called PLOS, P-L-O-S, right? And this is an open access journal. And, you know, recently there was a article that got a lot of waves by a guy named Marco Springman, who is another vegan activist scientist who published a study saying we need to tax meat, uh, for, for various reasons, for health reasons, to save a lot of money, save a lot of lives. And he published it in this this journal that was founded by another vegan. And that's 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 made a lot of media, uh, you know, it's kind of like driving this. Oh, there's a study, there's a scientific study out there that says we need to tax meat. And so that's being pushed forward by these vegans guys that are they're in positions to do that. The media is just lapping it up because their sponsors are processed food companies who, who love the fact that we want to get rid of meat. You know, and they base that on... Marco Springman based his his study based on the World Health Organization's proclamation in 2015 that red meat is a class 2 carcinogen and processed meats are a class 1 carcinogen. One of the problems with that panel that made that conclusion, which was called the IARC, the International Association for Research on Cancer, which is based out of Lyon, France, is when they met, uh, and Dr. Uh, uh, David Clearfield was on that panel, and he voted against that decision. And what he said was, while he was on that committee, about a third of the people on that committee were vegan or vegetarian. So they had a vested biased interest and they refused to declare that. They didn't declare that. And he, he asked that they declare that and they said, no, we're not, we're not, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna declare that. They looked at a bunch of studies, and they just routinely threw out all the studies that did not support their conclusion. They did not hear all the evidence. There were a lot of dissenters with that, but they still went with that. And they said, "Well, we're going to do that because we think it's ethical and the right thing to do for the environment, and therefore we're going to make this political statement that meat is a, a carcinogen, based on extremely, extremely weak evidence, most of which was epidemiology showing a minimal effect at any below any significant amount that we would we would ever consider acceptable." based on something called the Bradford Hill Criteria. So that came out, and then Marco Springman uses that. You know, a study, a study, you know, a panel decision put out by a bunch of vegetarians then causes a vegan to write an article that we should pack, tax meat, which is then published in a study that was founded, uh, that was published in a journal that was founded by a guy who's the chairman of the Beyond or the Impossible Foods fake meat company. So you see where this is going. We've got this, you know, this, this agenda, driven thing that's trying to push it there and so it's just you know beyond you know i mean it's you just watch it and you're seeing this and and people are just buying it hook line and sinker and it's it just feels so good you know the message is you know don't eat those cute cuddly cows and pigs uh, rather eat our our fake burgers our fake slop burgers when we talk about the lab grown meats right the clean meats and by the way Clean meat is no longer allowed to be used. That term is not long, not no longer acceptable because the meat industry fought that and said, "No, by saying yours is clean meat, that implies that ours is oh, somehow not clean."
0: Interesting. So that is no longer that.
1: so. So 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 clean meat is no longer an ex- will no longer be allowed to be published. You know, at least by the people that produce that stuff. But as it stands right now, the current technology, uh, and they're projecting that it'll save the environment. That that is based on just complete guesses and complete estimates on their part they have no working bioreactors uh, to prove this and it's just all speculation on their part but the way they do it now is you know they have to grow these cells and these cells have to eat something right you just can't make protein out of nothing so where do you get your protein from well guess what you get them from hugely giant monocrop fields of soybeans and peas and and wheat and you know and and corn so you're going to have to grow all these monocrops to build that protein. You know, you, it's not a free thing. So all the protein you get from the plants, you have got to put into these bioreactors. What do they grow the bio? What do they grow them in? So they have to, and they have to keep them sterile because there's no, you know, these little meat cellular structures don't have an immune system. So they have to keep it sterile. So they have to continuously bathe them in antibiotics and other, you know, pesticides and and uh, and, and other chemicals to prevent antibiotics from growing. So that, that stuff is bathed in that stuff. So people complain about antibiotics being administered to cows. Well, this stuff is like a thousand times worse. Additionally, um, the only thing that makes those cells l- being able to live is being bathed in something called bovine fetal serum. And so what they have to do is they have to kill a pregnant cow, take the unborn fetus, stick a big needle in its heart without anesthesia, suck out the blood and, and spin it down for serum and then use that to grow the cells. And they have to continuously do that. As long as those cells are growing, they have to continuously supply with new supply of dead pregnant cows. So, I mean, it's, it's just, um, a nightmare scenario. Uh, you know, and, and who knows if those, if that stuff is going to be healthy for us or not. You know, one of the things is to make those, those cells live forever. Cause that's what they want to do. They don't have, they don't want to have to keep harvesting cells from cows. Cause once they get the one they like, and it produces what they're going to want to continue to grow it over and over again. That's the same thing we do with cancer cells. We've got breast cancer cells that have been alive since the 1960s because they continue just to replicate, replicate, re- replicate. Does that have an impact on us eating that stuff? So you're basically eating a bunch of tumor cells because they've, they've become immortal. And d- is that a problem? You know, eating a burger that's 100% tumor cell would that cause anybody some some concern? You know, this this bathed in, this bathed in you know dead cow baby. F- dead fetus, cow fetus serum. So that that's the technology at this as it stands right now. But you know, they're gonna put it out as, you know, it's energy efficient, it's gonna save the environment, blah, blah, blah. And more importantly, if they scale it and they can make it profitable, that's the only thing that's gonna matter. How much money can they make off it? Can they do it more cheaper than they can raise a cow? And that's gonna be the bottom line and it's gonna be uh you know, it's gonna be pushed on you. They are gonna lobby for that and, you know the government's probably gonna, you know, I don't know, hopefully not, but we'll, we'll see what happens. So I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ready to buy, buy off on the the lab meat. I just don't think it's a good idea personally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When you describe it like that, it doesn't, uh, it, it's a, it's a lot less, uh, it's a lot less palatable than, um, than the way that I've heard it explained before, of course. Yeah.
1: Well, and they've got to they've got to grow it on a scaffold as well. You know, the meat just doesn't grow, they've got to give it a shape. And so, one of the things they're using as a potential is plastic. So they're putting a little plastic scaffold, which the meat will grow in. And do you eat the plastic then, or you know, does is, is the plastic come out? I mean, I don't even know how they how they're going to make the steaks. You know, they might make them. They might be able to make a blob, a blob of meat, uh, but uh, it's going to be uh, you know. And in, in my understanding, is vegans won't eat the stuff. Uh, at least the ethical ones because of the reasons we talked about with the cows being killed anyway. So, who's going to eat that stuff? You know, I'm I'm certain, I sure as hell would rather have a you know, a nice real steak than some meat blob.
0: Yeah, it is it is meat blob. I think that they're a really long um a really long ways away. We had I had Paul Shapiro uh who wrote Clean Meat uh on the podcast cuz I was just so fascinated by it. Uh, so fascinated by it and he he explained that they're a really long way away from from being able to like yeah create a steak it is it's it's all it's ground beef you know or it's ground clean meat well I can't say it anymore so it's it's made in like a beer in like a beer brewing system you know he talked about um uh, uh a beef chip which was like a beef jerky little thing uh that uh yeah fascinating man well <sighs> So much to think about I, I I've I have really enjoyed your content Sean and I and I really appreciate your approach and the way that you show up in the world is honest and forthright and backed by by knowledge and the results are speaking for themselves there's so many people having such amazing results just from from taking the carnivore approach and simplifying the way that they're eating. And, uh, I'm nine days in and I feel really good. Um, I've got a busy day today. I've got lots of stuff to do. I'm, I'm going to go work out here after this so I can, cause I've been sitting for a little bit, but, um, I like to end the podcast with, with ask, asking each of my guests, um, to complete the sentence. So if you would, everyone would benefit from knowing. Uh,
1: everyone would benefit from knowing that, you know, the power to change your health is 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 very much within your hands.
0: Dr. Sean Baker, thanks for joining us today on the Optimal Performance Podcast.
1: Hey, it's been my pleasure, Sean. Thank you. Let me know when this goes out and I will try to publicize it as well.